Hello and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm joined today by Liz Wendlin and Anne E. Lawton. They're going to be discussing work-life balance. Liz Wendlin is an assistant professor of art at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Her mixed media work explores the relationship between architecture and nature. Anne E. Lawton is a mixed media artist, registered art therapist, and an art educator at the University of Wisconsin, River Falls. And without any further ado, I'm going to hand the conversation over to these two. Awesome. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Um, and well, I'm so excited to be talking with you today, Anne, because um, just to get, give everybody a little bit of context, um, Anne and I actually taught together at the same institution for six years. And I just um, left after this past year for a new position. So I think it'll be nice to discuss um, this topic of work-life balance in academia and setting boundaries and different elements that come from that. So um, yeah, it's it's going to be fun to kind of talk to you about these things that we talked about when we, I think we shared an office, maybe like our first year or two together there. Yeah, we shared an office and then um, our offices were really close to each other and mm-hmm. we would always kind of pop in and check in with each other and mm-hmm. go over questions we would have about, you know, our teaching or our students. And um, so it was a really supportive um, collegial uh, relationship and friendship. And even though, uh, we no longer share a hallway, um, <laughs> still are very close uh, professionally and within uh, a really good friendship. So yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about all of this um, because it's so relevant with not just artists, but uh, art educators, K through 12, as well as higher ed. Um, and yeah, it's fun to be doing with this, this with you. So yeah. Um, well, I, I had found a quote the other day when I was kind of thinking about this conversation um, by Pythagoras, and it is, the oldest and shortest words, yes and no, are those which require the most thought. Um, and that really stuck with me as I was kind of thinking about this conversation, and I feel like you and I have been having this conversation for the last seven years um, yeah, forever. on each other, <laughs> um, and just kind of checking in with one another. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll just get started with yeah. asking you a question because um, we both, um, and just a little bit more context, I think we both started teaching around the same time, um, yeah. like 2010-ish. 2010, 2011. Yeah. Um, and um, that entire time you've been adjunct and had multiple positions, um, like with not just teaching, but being a practicing art therapist. Um, And I've kind of spent six years consecutively. I was at two different universities going back and forth. um, And then at a third one in the summers. And so we had a lot of conversations about this. So I'm wondering how with your roles and these many different hats that you still wear, um, how do you set boundaries and how do you balance work and life? Like what strategies do you do? And the idea of boundaries uh, is so important, I think, not even in professional life, but in personal life. But mm-hmm. um, I like to think of boundaries as a limit between um, you and others, basically where you uh, start and where others begin and end. And, um, 
you know, uh, as an art therapist and in my training in graduate school, this this concept of boundaries is, I mean, paramount mm-hmm. um, to be able to uh, do your work, do it ethically and professionally and not to take it home with you. Mm-hmm. And so that carried over seamlessly for me becoming an art educator. And I never planned on going into higher education or teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just kind of happened. And I'm so glad it did because it's something that I love and I feel like I'm thriving in. And using art therapy, uh, philosophy, techniques, and theory definitely informs my work. So going into education, um, I started really young. I mean, right out of grad school. Um, Mm -hmm. And the idea of I can do therapy, but can I do education? And I think for the first couple of years as an art educator, my boundaries were really poor. And I felt like I was taking on the weight of all my classes and all my students and having to please everybody. Um, but when it comes down to it, you know, that's not sustainable. And so burnout happens really quick in general, uh, for people who work with people, this could be educators, this could be people in health and mental health. It could even be, I would just think of, you know, uh, hairstylists and barbers who turn into therapists (laughs) and you have to set that expectation or at least grow into it, you know, um, let them evolve and always check in. So I think with going back to that Pythagoras, quote of being able to say no without uh feeling guilty Mm -hmm. and we're kind of taught you know especially as a young uh artist or young professional that you say yes to everything because that's how you get your foot in the door yeah yeah and it's painful because you overburden yourself and I felt like I did that absolutely for a good three or four years before I was like nope this can't this can't last and as I grew as an educator and, you know, simultaneously doing therapy work, it became even more evident in my therapy practice. Like, wow, you, re- re- you really need to find this balance within your teaching as well. But um, with you, Liz, how did that go for you then? Uh, what, what's your idea of boundaries and what do those look like for you now? Yeah, it's um, like it's very similar situations with you where I felt like the first three years, I mean, were just horrible of teaching. Like just, I mean, I was traveling between two different states and really doing way too much and saying yes to everything because I think, you know, as an adjunct, you're really fearful to say no. Um, and I won't go into that too much. Maybe I'll give a little plug for other parts of this podcast because I know there's a lot of really great conversations on um, the adjunct situation and contingent faculty right now in higher education. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> As an uh, adjunct for eight years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like sometimes, yeah, it, it was, I still look back at it now. Um, being grateful for my new position of just like, how on earth did I do that? Um, and anyway, but going back to your question of like setting boundaries and it, After the first few years and having um, a pretty major burnout, one of the years that was severely affecting my health, um, it's, I just, I kind of started writing and journaling and thinking about, you know, how is my body doing both mentally and physically, (laughs) Um, and that leading to different things, Um, you know, making lists of priorities, my family is important, making time to have dinner together with my husband um, and my studio practice is very important to me. And I think sometimes with teaching, we tend to lose our scholarship and our own research. And I'm a, as you know, I'm like a really big 
list maker and scheduler and color coded, color coded. Um, really, you know, that helps me work and that helps me kind of see visually how I'm spending my time and what I need to be doing. Um, so something with my studio practice and my own like personal art research and teaching research is, you know, blocking off time in my calendar. Um, I schedule one Friday or Saturday a month that is dedicated simply to applying and researching opportunities that I can, you know, submit to. Um, so that's been a really dedicated part of my practice since graduating MFA. Um, something else, like one simple boundary that I do that has improved over time. I'm definitely not perfect at it. Always, always room for improvement with things. Um, but that's, I set email hours and I'm very clear with my students in my syllabi of having, you know, working hour email hours. Like it's, I, I shut it off at six o'clock and that's when I, you know, home with my family, self-care, doing other things. And I think it's, you know, teaching, and so many other careers out there, I really feel like this conversation doesn't just apply to educators. Right. Um, but, you know, having, like, allowing ourselves to do that and not bringing work home with us as hard as, hard as that is to do. So um, for me, I just, I just really need to, like, shut it off and kind of unplug in order to move on, focus on the other things. So... Yeah. yeah, I agree. And I've, I've adapted the practice of email office hours mm. for myself. That is extremely helpful. And then within the past, I'd say three years, I leave my work computer at work. And oh that completely <laughs> eliminates any urge or desire to, you know, poke and prod at that yeah. final PowerPoint thing for that yeah. one lecture. Um, and then the email and then, you know, just the yeah. uh, internet in general. But um I think those, again, are learned over time about what needs to happen to be sustainable within your own balance between work and life. And it's it's a constant thing. It's always evolving and changing mm-hmm. and to, it, to check in. And that's the hardest part is often yeah. people become so uh, entrenched in, in losing sight of, of balance that it's, you know, when they're, when they're falling to burnout, that's when they're like, Oh man, I should probably change something. So, and often, yeah, burnout has to happen or this apathy sets in and you have to realize, okay, this needs to change and then action and then staying on top of it. And um, you touched on the point of self care and Mm -hmm. I, I, this, this topic has been really near and dear to me because part of my master's thesis, I wrote my thesis about self-care in the form of uh, keeping a sketchbook. Mm. And that was back, you know, uh, nine, nine years ago, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And before this real uh, commercialized self-care boom that we've seen um, in, in social media and marketing and even, you know, retail stores. Mm-hmm. Um, that, yeah, we as professionals need to take care of ourselves, but it's been kind of, uh, masked as consumerism now, which is really disheartening, yeah. um, that self-care is actually, and I just read this the other day, it's a $10 billion industry. <sighs> so, so, you know, in theory, yeah, it's good money, but if it's not, you know, treating yourself all the time to these luxury experiences, it's doing the really hard, dirty work daily 
yeah. um, checking in, addressing your shortcomings, addressing where you're where you're uh, depleted, um, confronting those issues um, head on, and not just math. You know, I love ice cream and pizza as much as anybody, but that's not going to fix it, right? Uh, yeah. So, dedic- yeah, dedicating myself every day to check in and do the hard work, and yeah, there are days that that doesn't happen, but mm-hmm. um, you know, getting better at that. But yeah. we need to also understand, and this is just my perspective that within the society we live and function in that it's unhealthy and the institutions we work in um, such as academia or this idea of hustle culture Mm. uh, specifically with creative industries is unsustainable um, and I mean it's unsuccessful for those of us who are always trying to do find the next thing make the sale make the make the pitch make the make the team essentially yeah. Uh, so you can't have self-care if you're always having to one up the applications. Yeah. So academia and I would say the art world is really it's archaic in its in its function of how we take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that I'm still coming to terms with and, and trying to understand. Uh, but my, my idea of self-care has definitely evolved since my thesis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and that dreamy naivety of being a grad student I'm like yes the sketchbook will be the perfect place to do everything um you know but it's it everybody has to find what's right for them but again I can't stress enough how every single day it needs to be applied yeah um going back to kind of what you were saying with that a little earlier is like this burnout um and it do you feel like as humans and as academics like do we do people need to have like some major burnout in order to like realize what we need to do to move on or do can we just kind of start practicing it and implementing self-care and boundaries into our life um and have you ever had like a major burnout at some point in your career and kind of what did you do absolutely yeah i i well absolutely in the fact that i've had burnout yeah. Um, I would say more so in teaching than therapy. Um, I think I'm more protective of my therapy burnout um, mm. because of liability and the, the you're dealing with people's lives directly. I'm still dealing with people's lives when I'm teaching. Yeah. But there's this accepted nomenclature of, yeah, academia is supposed to be hard and tiring and stressful, you know, like and standing up to that and be like, no, that's messed up. We shouldn't always be feeling this. Um, Takes a lot of energy within itself. Um, So I would say, you know, it's, it's every, every three years, I think I've experienced, you know, some type of bottoming out and cause causes me pause to reassess. And of course, in those burnout moments, I think those of us, it's hard to admit that vulnerability of like, you know what, I'm not meant to do this forever. I'm not good at this, or I don't want to be a part of this anymore. But once we start taking care of ourselves and seeing, oh, when I regulate the time I'm investing in certain things or people or, you know, how we, how we budget that energy really makes a difference in our overall performance, but how we function overall, getting back to that work-life balance. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with all of that. And it, um, I always, I've had this conversation with multiple people and I actually have like a really pivotal moment in a semester of when I was just like total limit 
Um, and it was fall 2013. I <laughs> remember that. I know. <laughs> you probably helped get me through it. <laughs> um, and I was teaching, so a full-time for studio art is three courses um, for full-time faculty. I was teaching five. I was at two schools, you know, in Minnesota and Wisconsin. I was teaching five classes, five days a week. I started, I think it was like Monday when I was like 8 a.m. in the mornings in Wisconsin, but then I'd have a night class at Augsburg on Tuesday, Thursday. So then I'd get home and be exhausted and have to wake up. And I had a bit of a commute. Yeah. (laughs) And so it just like it was one thing after another and these really, really horrible patterns starting that affected my sleep and some health issues were happening because of that. I threw out my back (laughs) Um, like it was just kind of, you know, like when it rains, it pours. Um, And I think throwing out my back was like one of the best things that ever happened to me Mm -hmm. uh, because it forced me. I couldn't walk for a week. Um, and it forced me to really slow down. And I hate that I had to get to that point of just complete exhaustion and complete, you know, um, everything boiling over. But it, that point really caused me to reevaluate everything. Um, and I think over the years of, you know, this almost decade of teaching, I've really learned this kind of formula for how I'm most successful. And that really started then. And that's like, you know, we all have to listen to our bodies and figure out what works for us. And for me, it it really includes food, sleep and exercise or like three things that are just like uh, a decent sprinkling of all of those helps me function the best. And And it's all common sense stuff that we feel like, Oh, you should be eating three meals a day and you should be getting eight hours of sleep. But in, in practice, it's not always, we, life is not predictable like that. And, um, I think getting back to our students, like how do we model this for them? Because they, they look to us not only as, you know, who they're learning from for their skill sets and creative voice development, but how we live and, um, integrating and I'm, you know, Liz, you know, I'm pretty transparent with my students and, and you are in your own way too, but being, you know, being open with them, like I'm really struggling with this or in a professional way and not crossing those boundaries. And again, I, 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 I test my art therapy training to knowing when that is, um, and they appreciate that. So within each class, I try to structure mindfulness, um, exercises and directives such as starting class with setting intentions or breathing. And I know you do that too. Yeah. And that seems to help them incredibly. And they're like, wow, what a concept. Why haven't I, you know, had this before? And because they are, you know, facing their own academic uh, burnout, anxiety, and and everything that they face, and so we're more like our students than I think a lot of instructors yeah. know across the board in academia, and you know by being able to show that you empathize with them, create it, it helps kind of uh, kickstart that culture shift, that work culture. Um, but again, there's still a lot of really bureaucratic or you know people in academia saying, well we we don't see the value in this and and that's okay and and my work as an art therapist is always having to explain what that is to what art yeah. therapy is yeah i'm fine with always having to justify it because i believe in it and i know it works 
Yeah. So, you know, the biggest cultivation happens with just one person and, uh, uh, and that gets carried on to, uh, just maybe small planting small seeds uh, within fellow educators, but my my focus is with my students and how they are able to take this with them uh, when they graduate and go on to their respective fields. Yeah, and I think they they just appreciate that so much in teaching. Like, if uh, the faculty members being open and vulnerable, but we can still do that. And talking about balance in a little bit of a different way like have that balance while still having professionalism and still, you know, having high expectations uh, for outcomes and what they need to be exploring, but also, you know, like just kind of being real with them. Like, Hey, some days a hundred percent isn't possible all (laughs) all day long and not beating yourself up about that. Um, I know we both talk about, like perfectionism and how that can really be a bit of a crutch, especially in creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's so many different facets that this this conversation and these examples. Yeah, um, and I I talk with my students a lot, and I remember doing this as a student too. Is it's almost like a it's a competition of who's the most tired, who's the most stressed. Oh my god! And you know, you're just trying to prove like. I'm allowed to feel the way I feel. You're allowed to feel the way that you feel no matter what. Let's not compare it. And within yeah. art, within mental health, within art therapy, I talk a lot about you can't compare pain. Um, yeah. And you can't compare experiences because we're all coming from different uh, backgrounds and di- different pain tolerance, to be, to be honest. Um, and, you know, I can't, like, for example, the example that I like to use, if I'm working with a suburban um, house mom, uh, stay-at-home mom, who's just discontent with her life and her marriage, and she's really just struggling. Her, it, it sounds really strange to say it out loud, her issues are no more or less important than the person that I'm working with that has sobriety issues. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, you know, not popular to say that, like, yeah, yeah, they both deserve my equal attention and care. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, obviously, you know, my goal is to have them improve and to help them. But I can't say, well, to the soccer mom, you know, well, you should get over it. You're not you don't have a crippling, you know, addiction issue. I can't say, you know, you can't compare that because that guilt is never helpful. And I think Within being an artist, we always are comparing ourselves to other and the success of others, that guilt that's there in academia, that guilt of uh, a position or, or um, research and so on, that guilt of comparison, we, it, that doesn't help us thrive and it doesn't help each other, uh, you know, one another within the community that we exist in and serve as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I My think question... That- I have a question um, with regards to now I'm still adjuncting and you know, that's fine for me, um, I guess. And with (laughs) with what I do as an art therapist, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm curious to know, Liz, having been a long-term adjunct faculty like myself, you've made the transition within the last year, you received a well-deserved tenure track position Thank what you. do you notice that has shift for you 
with regards to boundaries or your work-life balance with yeah. just the title change or the expectations held of you? Yeah, it's it's been such a interesting and amazing year. Um, I'm so grateful, and I'm I just I love my department. I love Augsburg, and I could talk for a really long time about <laughs> things about both of those things. Um, and I I wasn't really sure what to expect because I, you know as I said I was teaching like four or five classes a semester. I taught one to two classes in the summers. I mean, just to meet like to make ends meet, which yeah. is, I mean, when you think about it and think about the prep and the grading and the driving that I was doing across, you know, I'd be going to Minnesota and Wisconsin every day. Um, and so I wasn't totally sure what to expect, but, um, like I was saying before, I have a strong, you know, habit of writing and journaling and kind of checking in with myself and seeing how things are going. Um, and the biggest change that has, that I really, or the, like, I guess the hardest thing was I almost found it harder to say no this year than, um, which I didn't anticipate because as before as like a desperate adjunct, you just say yes to everything. Um, but I had kind of this easy no, um, because for so long on, you know, Monday, Wednesday, I was Augsburg Liz and Tuesday, Thursday, I was Wisconsin Liz. So it just wasn't possible for me to take on additional commitments that, because, you know, I couldn't get to those other places. And so now I'm, I'm Augsburg Liz every day. (laughs) And so it's really made me kind of reevaluate how I'm approaching that and balancing things. And, you know, I, I really strongly believe that what I say no to is just as important as what I say yes to. Yeah, I agree whole, wholeheartedly. That's yeah, it's so amazing. That demonstrates, you know, our priorities and how, you know, how we're giving something to something. And it, um, I really love working with people that I'm going to take some Brene Brown language for those of you that are familiar <laughs> I have a hard time talking about this with not bringing up Brene um, because she's wonderful. Um, And this idea of a wholehearted, um, like cultivating a wholehearted community and working with people, you know, I don't want to be the person that says yes to everything and then have to back out all the time. Like I want to say yes to the things that, you know, I'm passionate about that I know I can use my skill set for and do a great job with it. Um, But then also, you know, sometimes we can't be a hundred percent all the time. Like I was saying before. Right. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get on top of my feminist soapbox for a minute. (laughs) And, um, you know, as women working in our respective fields to the thing about art therapy is 90% plus, I think it's 93% of art therapists are women. So it's a, Mm. it's a, it's a female dominated field in the rest of the world. Um, you know, I think in academia, we, both of us, we tend to be empathetic and, and nurturing to our students while still towing a hard line of expect high expectations, right? Mm-hmm. So we, I often find that we get taken advantage of for being kind and, you know, being empathetic and willing to listen. But when we hold expectations, then we turn into the bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the quote that I love, 
that I, I, I am always thinking of it is kind women are not your therapists and not your keepers, <laughs> you know, and, and I can still be kind and compassionate, but still, you know, not be considered a lesser person because I have high expectations that are healthy Yeah. of not only myself, but others, not, you know, others that I work with or students or just the the foundation and industry of of art in general um and you know how that goes and everybody has a different experience specifically in academia depending on where they're at and how large their institution is but as a whole i i'm safe to assume that of course uh women who are in academia not just the arts, fall pitfall to this. And we see this in within the research done with teaching evaluations, which is, a, that's a whole other podcast in itself. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I think there, there might be one on that on here. Or if not, I, if not somebody should do it. Right. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and I think in our culture, it starts at such a young age, right? Because as, you know, little girls, we, we're rewarded when we are playing nicely and, um, you know, being considerate, which, you know, are all good things, but like asking for help or saying no is not, you know, that's so, not yeah, the foundations of good boundaries are discarded. <laughs> yeah. When we're, when we're children. Yeah. Yeah. And hope, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I don't work with small children, so maybe that's different nowadays, but, um, it's still uh, there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we can talk about like cultivating a work culture that c- promotes boundaries and balance. And I think we probably each have something on this. Um, I just want to start with, I think having conversations like this are, you know, essential for, for this to be part of our language and what's going on. Um, I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's just because it's something I've been talking about more openly with people, this idea of work-life balance and setting boundaries and saying yes and no. Um, I think that in academia, there's this really bad phrase, and I think in all work culture, too, of doing more with less. Yes. (laughs) I I was just talking to a colleague yesterday about budget things and I don't know much of there's always budget things with any thing and I'm just like that phrase do more with less you know we've been doing more with less for how long and it's not going well we're all we're all that's what leads to burnout you're not supporting uh staff which in turn doesn't doesn't support students and I I go to um, thinking about nurses and I think about doctors Mm -hmm. and I think about mental health professionals where, you know, overworked professionals, you know, that's, that's high, you know, high, high risk situations that you're dealing with people. And I think, you know, working in education is the same, Yeah, you know, where supervisors provide a pizza party and call it good. Like we appreciate you. That's not (laughs) enough anymore. Yeah. Just telling us you appreciate us. Yes. It's good to hear that. And don't get me wrong. There, there, there are institutions that don't voice appreciation at all, which is detrimental. So, but we need, you know, we need to go past just, I appreciate you. Here's a pizza party. We need to show that with, you know, incentive and and not re it's not a reward culture, you know, (laughs) speaking as a late millennial, like, yeah, it's not a participation trophy, but I want to be recognized for the investment that I'm doing 
because I care and because I'm dedicated and I'm committed, not because I want to feel like I'm seen and heard. Right. So getting an academia is all about that. Like the grade that you get, the scholarship, but Mm -hmm. you know, as someone who struggled in undergraduate, but did well in graduate school and now teaching in academia, it's the middle of the, the pack kids like myself that deserve just as much recognition as the ones doing, you know, all the good stuff too. Like, um, so I think, it's not a culture of everybody gets a, you know, a ribbon for doing what they do, but, you know, showing up and and doing the work and being vulnerable and taking risk with that. It's important. And, you know, as an adjunct, I think it feels like I have to, yeah, I have to say yes to things because of job security, but we know that that's not true. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So you know, I, I don't know, I don't know really what can change by, besides just showing up and voicing my opinion in a professional articulate way whenever it's needed mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, being honest and like you said, vulnerable and open and authentic with one another. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of places are doing it well and people and, you know, me, I'm an optimist. I think that, um like I said, having this conversation was a really good start. And I've right. been seeing other people talking about it. Maybe it's, you know, just because I'm making it more of, of a prominent part of my life. Um, I've been really grateful, um, again, with my department and at Augsburg, of just openly talking with faculty outside of my department as well with this idea. Um, within my department, something that we do um, like departmental meetings. Um, I think it came up in one of my interviews when I was being interviewed about how I do breathing exercises. Yeah. <laughs> and so right when I was hired, my chair, he started our first meeting and just said, you know, we want you to do breathing exercises to start our meeting. And I was just like, what? <laughs> um, but that meant so much to me because, you know, my yeah. department was accepting you know, my maybe strange teaching strategies (laughs) and techniques and really being open to, hey, this is maybe something where we can kind of start meetings and set an intention um, and just being open to talk about um, these ideas. Another thing that we do is one of my colleagues teaches with the Pomodoro technique. Are you familiar with, have you heard of that technique? I haven't. So it's, um, you use a timer and set a timer to 25 minutes and then you take a five minute break and then 25 minutes, five minute break, 25 minutes, five minute break. Oh, okay. Like, like it's kind of the philosophy, like you only lecture 15 minutes and then, you know, kind of deal and do an activity and then do a discussion, right? So breaking up the time. Yeah. And there's, I think it's more of like, was meant to be like a successful and it's very successful. There's a lot of research behind like the time management element of it. Um, but I really like that it recognizes breaks and, mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm somebody, I don't like sitting too much. Yeah. Uh, and so it allows us to get up and kind of break this mentality of not just powering through, you know, we'll have like a three hour meeting talking about pretty intense and stressful things sometimes. And, um, you know, taking those breaks, I think is really mm-hmm. nice just to kind of get up and stretch. And um, I think this goes back to, full circle to self-care and then also um, modeling to students of learning when to take a break rather yeah. than quit. 
Yeah. And I think it's, again, it takes practice. It takes, it takes failure. It takes adverse situations to do that. And within that too, I just want to touch on um, how in academia, again, that we have the, the arts, the sciences, the humanities, business, so on. The, the arts and, you know, dance and music and writing, we kind of get poo-pooed as like, oh yeah, you guys don't really, you know, you just do what you do. And it, mm-hmm. we're not really accepted, I feel like, as true academics. We're just like, you guys just sit around and make stuff all day and <laughs> talk about feelings. It's like, well, no, actually. <laughs> oh my uh, you know, and I think that needs to work on, you know, as within institutions individually and as a whole that, listen, <laughs> We, we, we do pedagogy, we do critical thinking skills, we, we prepare students to think divergently. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that I, and I, again, this is, this is the bad academic in me. There was some study where um, medical school uh, acceptance uh, within the past couple of years that um, humanities majors are getting accepted into medical school at greater numbers compared to science majors. Because they can think critically, they can empathize, they can relate, and they can problem solve. Mm-hmm. And so it's regurgitating those are, stats. Yeah, those are skills that are, I think, in our culture now, like people outside of the arts are realizing the importance of that. You know, it's right. not, it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think we're, you know, coming up on our time here, Liz, but, yeah. um, <laughs> but <laughs> I think, um, you know, thinking about then, you know, my final question to you, and I'm, I'm fine with answering this after you're done, but wh- how, what can you describe to me, you know, thinking about your evolution, being an art educator and an artist, mm. um, what do you believe the core essence is of what you do? Mm. Yeah, I think with, I think with both of them, you know, these two hats that a lot of us wear, um, for me, it's, it's curiosity and purpose. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I have, I like to take around this like childlike mentality of, I, and I talk about this a lot when I talk about my work of like coming into my studio and kind of having this mantra of like, what would five-year-old Liz do? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and really being open to um, that idea of exploration and not being perfect all the time and just kind of play. Um, and that that I take into my teaching a lot. And I love how, as an artist and an educator, I can really combine the two. And, you know, I should be, right? Like, I should be taking my personal research and what I do into the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really preach that uh, with my students. And for me, going back to the part of your question of the evolution of being an educator. Um, I always knew I wanted to be an artist. I always like four years old. What do you want to be when you grow up artists? Um, and yeah. I, didn't always, yeah. I didn't know the teacher part, um, but I'm the oldest daughter of six children. And I, I really feel like that really influenced some of my kind of leadership and nurturing capabilities. Um, I think teachers who care about others, who care about helping students, um, we're definitely not in this for the money. Um, Wait, what? <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, As an artist and an educator? Yeah. Uh, and I just, like, I love teaching so much more than I thought I would. So I'm so glad that I honored that you know, five-year-old, like, this is what I'm doing. Like, I'm not listening to 
society, you know, pressuring me to not, you know, this is not something you can do. You can't like, what are you going to do with the BFA? Um, it's always that there's that quote of like BFA is like three letters for disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, you know, like, I think we're proof of you can do something with that. Um, having that curiosity and that purpose of making and helping others. Um, I can't guarantee that I'm doing that, but I hope I am. <laughs> Just something to strive for always, yeah. you know, that's always on the horizon to, mm-hmm. uh, carrot on that mystic. Keep going, keep going. Yeah. How yeah. about you? Um, like you, I, since a very young age, um, I was very fortunate to have parents, um, and again, recognizing the privilege behind that too. Like my parents, college educated. My mom was a junior high English teacher. My dad's a dentist. Um, They always encouraged me to uh, do art and take art classes and and do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had the privilege of being encouraged and having supportive parents and also to, they're like, yeah, go ahead and major in art. That's fine. Um, But coming from that background of education and then um, working with people, uh, from both parents, there was something that calling of that, that, that institution that was instilled in me of you help others when you have more or you have the ability to mm-hmm. not because to prove yourself or to make a name for yourself, but because you can, um, and, and using that privilege and, yeah. and, good ways. So, um, you know, when I, was I, I I can't remember if I was a sophomore or junior, but I just took a kind of elective class that was called Introduction to Art Therapy. And you know, after the first day of class, um, her name she's she's now deceased, but her name was Diane Mexner, and she was an art therapist in Minnesota, and she really inspired me to do that. And after the first day of class, I declared a psychology minor, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah. And so I'm like, ta-da, here I am. So so having the strong, you know, artistic foundations of expression paired with, I want to help others with this. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it comes down to art and general art and, and just life and, and, and therapy and community and Mm -hmm. everything we do comes down for me to two things. You like you curiosities there, finding motivation, finding the how and the why and the what's new and what's next. And, um, not to prove something and not to uh, argue with others, but to be genuinely curious. And then the second thing is connection that we as humans um, crave and desire attention uh, yeah. from others and to connect with others. Um, we desire, we desire uh, human relationships. Um, and so art being able to, uh, as a way to do that within therapy and then also obviously with teaching. Yeah. Um, and, and that's right now. And I think for, for a very long time now has been what drives me and what yeah. I'll continue to do. Um, and I'm always learning. I'm always improving. I'm always finding new things out about myself, mm-hmm. about humans, about what we need. Um, but really that's the root of all of it for me. <laughs> Such a beautiful and horrifying thing. <laughs> it is. And, and that's the reality of life though, right? It's yeah. Yeah. Equal parts tragic and magic kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah. So great. I think that it, um, yeah, I feel like, like I said, we could just talk all day and I think. Oh that, yeah. And we could, but. <laughs> yeah. 
with what we were just saying there. Like, I think in education, higher education, it's just important to remember, you know, going back to this work-life balance and saying no and cultivating this community. You know, we're all really on the same team. We're and all, it, yeah, yeah. We and what's best for our students, right? Um, right? And just like, how can we do that as faculty and staff um, to create? To really create those environments and, and going back to this idea of connection and that sense of belonging that I think um, so many of our students and us as humans really strive for. So I agree. And that is a really good spot for us to conclude. <laughs> thank you both so much. This was a really great conversation. Well, thank you, Ellen. Thanks, Ellen.